Hey there, players. I'm Scott Silver. I've spent the last quarter century as a real estate attorney and as an investor. I've met a lot of great people along the way, and I can't wait to introduce you to them. These are the specialists. They're the people that do one special thing. And I'm going to find out exactly what they do and how they and others in their profession can help you succeed in real estate. Some of them provide a service that you'll need on every real estate deal. Others, you'll hope you'll never need, but when you do need them, you'll be glad you know they exist and you heard about them here. Welcome to Real Estate What's the Deal, the podcast that shines a light on the service professionals without whom commercial real estate deals wouldn't happen. So what is the deal with land use? I have here Dana Sales, principal, head honcho of 360, an amazing land use consultancy that I know helps out a ton of developers and restaurant builders and all sorts of people. And I'm not sure exactly what she does, uh, but I know it's fantastic. And I want to thank you, Dana, for joining us today. Nice to see you. Sure. Nice to see you. So maybe we should start by just telling me what is, if you had to give me the elevator pitch on what is land use consultancy, what do you do? All right. So our company is, we say we're full service land use, land use, where we are essentially there helping the development industry cut through all the red tape. I established this company uh, coming out of the last recession um, to be a full service, one-stop resource for developers where we could get involved in kind of site acquisition and due diligence and really helping helping our clients understand what they have on the property, um, take it through entitlements and whatever is necessary. We're, we're really big on strategy, which I can get into in a little bit, mm -hmm. um, with in-house community engagement. So as we're the ones that are taking projects through various jurisdictions, we're also talking to people in the communities and then continuing those services all the way through with building permit expediting. The time I started this company now, you know, almost 10 years ago, uh, there was no full service land use company in at Los Angeles. You either had an entitlement consultant and then you had a building permit expediter and then you had another firm doing community engagement and then you had it, right? And it, nothing, there was all this handoff. And so there was never an institutional source of a resource from someone that really knew the ins and outs of the project. Mm -hmm. That's really how we got started is one-stop shopping resource on the, on, the, on the jurisdictional side, call it. Does land use consulting also mean, um, does anyone ever come to you and just say, uh, I just inherited uh, an acre of land. What's the best use for it? I say, I can tell you what you can do with it. You need to go run the numbers because you don't want me touching a performa. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to actually apply a quote unquote highest and best value to it. Right. I'll give you all the information, you go figure it out and come back to me when you figure out what you want to do. But yeah, I mean, the calls usually start as so I have this piece of land, and either they say, I would like to build an office building, or I would mm -hmm. like to build multifamily. And then we say, okay, we understand sort of what lane you want to go down, we'll give you the parameters and then you run the numbers. And if you want to go forward, call us back. 
mm-hmm. or the conversations go, I have this piece of land and I'm not really sure what I can do with it. And then we'll kind of go down a different avenue, which is basically to say, here's all, here's all the potential uses that are permitted. And here's generally the, the box on what you can do. And then you go figure out, you know, we, and then we have more of a strategic discussion about what's reasonable, what's feasible, what's controversial, how long, you know, time and money and what's it going to cost. And, you know, based on that, that helps them narrow the the direction a little bit. And then we kind of take it from there. I see. And do you also look into what might be in the future? You know, let's say I'm buying land that's sort of far out. Could you say, well, right now you can only do a farm, but here's what we see that the city is going towards? All the time. Um, So me and my entire team, with exception of our administrative team, are all registered lobbyists in the city of Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles and surrounding jurisdictions that we do work in. So we have a a professional obligation to follow what's going on. You know, I mean, you know, if I talk to somebody on the on the on the builder side, they're following the building trades, they know what's going on. If I'm talking to, right, like we have to know it's coming down. So a lot of what we do is policy that has nothing to do with any specific projects, but following community plan updates, following ordinances as they're coming through, clients ask all the time. We mm-hmm. spend a lot of time on statewide legislation, particularly on the housing front. So yeah, we have to understand, mm-hmm. you know, perfect example, the Hollywood community plan and the downtown Los Angeles plan are currently in pending updates. So whenever someone comes to us with a site, we tell them what they can do now and then what the plan is going to call for in the future. And then you make a decision on how to proceed and essentially which package of rights is better for you. Current, let's say zoning is better for you now. We would probably advise, you know, moving as quickly as possible investing against the plan. If the plan is beneficial, it then becomes a question of how long can you wait? Can you afford land carry and then process once the plan gets adopted? And then what does that look like? It's very strategic based upon, you know, objectives. Does your firm also try and um, influence that as far as if there's a comments period, will you put in comments or do you ever uh, submit uh, what we would call in the law, like friend of the court, but I don't know what you'd call like a brief, you know, report. You do that as well? We do comment letters on community plans. We dra- helped to draft motions. This is off the record, right off the record. We help draft motions for council if there's things that we're particularly lobbying for. Um, our office has been in conversations with uh, state senators about various legislation that's pending in the legislature and amendments that we might want to kind of help to, to push through. Do you do those with a with an agenda to help your clients necessarily, or just what you think is good planning in general? It's sort of both. Typically, there's an issue that comes up from some client that makes light of something, and you know sometimes it's project specific or a client specific. They will say, "I need help with X," and then we go mm-hmm. lobby for that. Um, a Got lot that. of times, it's applicable to multiple things and. 
we in our office, you know, everyone here has kind of a different pet priority on things that we're interested and care about that we all take it upon ourselves to sort of lobby on different issues. Um, but yeah, I mean, usually it's, it's on behalf of the greater good. And when I say the greater good, it's not just clients. Most of it we don't charge for or get paid for because we're doing it on behalf of ourselves and our colleagues in the industry to say, you know, collectively, we all think that X, Y, and Z is horrible and is going to be detrimental to what the city is trying to achieve. How do we change it? Let's give a little uh, land use 101. How would you say, like, uh, are there, what would be the elements of land use? What I know I'm thinking there's zoning and laws about you. What are the sort of, sort of you were going to check the box about, if I came to you and said, what is land use for a particular piece of land? What are the elements? It's a really broad topic. We all talk about ourselves as planners, but it's like saying, sure, I'm a planner, but then they say, well, what kind of planner are you? Just like you're a lawyer, right? What kind mm -hmm. of lawyer are you? It's an incredibly broad field. So is planning. Mm -hmm. And we are in an extremely narrow niche of um the world of what's called land use so land use is the overall kind of regulatory environment that surrounds physical property it's it's everything from zoning and general plan and policy and kind of the intersection between all of those and then physical feasibility literally on the ground plane what do you have what can you do what can't you do how do i get to do what i want to do Right. So you could, so even though zoning might permit a certain type of building, if you're on the edge of a cliff, you, your land use physically is you can't build it there, right? We always say like, you can't, you can't look at property in two dimensions because what things look like in two dimensions and three dimensions are often dramatically different. Right. Plus I imagine you can't look at that property alone. You have to look at the neighborhood, the neighboring properties, because if you have to send out postcards for a public hearing to them. You better be wise about who your neighbors are and what they want there and don't want there. And, you know, for better or for worse, I have, I think, a reputation of taking on some really complicated stuff because we, I really like to kind of solve the unsolvable problem. Like, how do we figure this out? But I'm not the person that people come to if you're really trying to do something that's so far out of the box that it's, it's never going to happen. I pride ourselves on, on having an unbelievable success rate. In nine years, we've only had two projects denied and they were very, very unique circumstances. So two out of hundreds is a pretty low low number but I, the mission of the company when I wrote the business plans that I want to work on projects that I believe on with people I like right I didn't have this like I want to make the world a better place yes it was just I just want to work on something I believe in with people I actually can stand working with every day right so you, you shouldn't have taken that Hadid project we had a project that a client came to us 
and it was in the middle of a historic neighborhood, uh, historic, one of the oldest Latino communities in all of Los Angeles. There's nothing more than a two-story, maybe duplex in the entire neighborhood. It just happens to have unbelievable zoning where it's a tier three transit-oriented community site allowed an incredible amount of density with an unlimited height. And they came in and proposed an eight-story building in the middle of this neighborhood. And we literally, one of my staff came in the office and said, I went out to the property. We shouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole. If they want to work on it, it's fine. We shouldn't have our name attached to this because it's going to be a nightmare. And this isn't something that I think is right in this neighborhood. Who cares about what the underlying zoning is? And we walked, we walked away. I right. gave him a referral to somebody else who took it through. And, I, and I'm not saying it didn't have the ability to get approved because I think it was, appro it was ultimately approved. There's a limit right. at some point to just, all development doesn't belong everywhere. Right, right. You don't want to feel like you had a part in, in helping screw up a neighborhood. <laughs> and then on the flip side, when we really believe in something, I'm going to go to the mat for it. Mm -hmm. I'm like crazy. Mm -hmm. I don't care what people say. The term entitlements. I uh, find a lot of people confusing the word and just talking about the word and not really understanding what it means, I mean, I'll tell you, and you can correct me, what I think it means is everything, all the permits and all the approvals that are needed to develop a project. Would you, am I, am I on there or am I missing something and what entitlements means? In the land use world, getting an entitlement means you're asking for something that's discretionary. You actually need to, to actively create a package of land use rights that don't inherently exist by right. I see. You have a by right development and you're just, here's my box and I'm fully consistent with it. There is no entitlement process. There are, there are no entitlements. It's right. It's an odd word for what it is, but it's right. an act of actually creating permission to do something that doesn't otherwise exist. And so it only is applicable to the world of discretion, meaning this, some jurisdiction needs to actively take action through an established procedure in their municipal code to grant you something. It could be as small as, right, what we come across with single family homes is my neighbor has a fence and it's on my side of the property and then my setback can only be four feet instead of five, right? Something as small as I need it or I have an overheight hedge, right, to... I have a manufacturing zone site and I want to do a big mixed use project and I have to do a zone change in the general plan amendment. So even something simple as I want to do a five foot hedge, even though I'm only allowed a three and a half foot hedge in my front yard, requires some action. Yeah, I think people confuse. Uh, and as you can see by what I said on the definition, even I confuse and forget that, you know, it's often people think, oh, if you have your permits, you have your entitlements, but I'm glad you cleared it up. So entitlements are only those things that are, uh, that you get that are not as of right. If it's as of right, then you don't need entitlements. You just need entitlements. Anything you need to ask for an approval for, it would be in the nature of an entitlement. Right. So we qualify things as you, you have entitlements and then you have permitting. 
right? Mm -hmm. Permitting is permitting. That's just more of a, a rote exercise where frankly, we run around the city and deal with the brain damage so someone else doesn't have to. That's all, that's mm -hmm. all it really is. You know, on the, on the permitting side, we just happen to know plan checkers and people in various departments, you know, better than right. someone else to know who to go to. On the planning and entitlement side, it's much more intricate because we're dealing with code, we're dealing with politics and lobbying, we're dealing with strategy, we're dealing with community engagement. It's not, it's, it's an art. Yeah, it's funny, but I also think the reason why there's confusion is, I mean, I can tell you just personally, I just went through, as you know, a, a complete as of right project for, to get permits to build uh, an apartment building for 15 units. And I purposefully told my architect, we want to do everything as of right because I don't want to seek any entitlements. But after a year of dealing with DWP and the building and safety department and the housing department, I think so much of it felt arbitrary and discretionary and it was such a headache and hassle that it felt like getting entitlements. It didn't feel like it was as of right. So maybe that's another reason why people say I got my entitlements because it's just so hard even just to get a permit. It's yeah. really hard and frankly it keeps getting harder. And what do you what do you think that's due to uh I'm sure it's a, a bunch of things, but like why do you think, and of course in Southern California, I think city of LA may be, the, may be one of the worst. Why, why is it so hard? Is it just all the different departments that need to sign off, all the different voices? I think, I think it's a combination of, I'll say kind of three, the intersection of three things. And this has been coming for pretty much since the last recession, since the last cycle. Generally, California is a, bottom-up political environment where the many people on the bottom, we'll put the neighbors, the communities, et cetera, have the most say, right? And you as a property owner, I always say the starting place is assume that you as the property owner have absolutely no rights, right? The inherent notion that you have a right to do something on your property is like out the window here. So we start with the notion that if you can dispel the development world, that they're actually using the correct way of the, entitled to do something on your land. Right. Right. Just doesn't exist here. It's bizarre, but that's the premise. So you, you're dealing with kind of an upside down world where you get no rights and everyone else has the right to tell you what to do. And so navigating that as a starting place is just impossible. Coupled with the world of just bureaucracy, where most cities, particularly the city of LA and the county, because they're so enormous, have inexperienced staff. There have been so many retirements of people with institutional memory backfilled in with, with like newbie planners out of school. Nobody's mm -hmm. trained appropriately. Um, mm -hmm. The pandemic has had this exodus of staff where people were like, screw it, I'm going on early retirement and taking my mm -hmm. pension and going. So it's, it's only gonna get worse. And so you're mm -hmm. dealing with that 
the realities of just lack of staff. And then we have a completely backwards kind of political system where our civic leaders are tariff more more concerned about not getting elected than they are about doing the right thing. And so we don't actually have a a, a real strong kind of political base of politicians with strong visions when it comes to development and planning. It's We're like, willing to take hard stances and make decisions for the greater good. And so decisions are made on behalf of a small few rather than the large majority, right? And so when you put all that together, you deal with a regulatory environment that is brutal, an inexperienced set of staff, right? Politicians who are afraid to do what's right and an environment where you need to tell to frankly, a group of stakeholders who know nothing about development and can literally hold you hostage. And then mm -hmm. there's laws coming out of Sacramento and things are changing at the city all the time that are just, frankly, the intent is to try and streamline, but then no one really knows how to do it. So it's just, yeah. just hard. So, you know, for better or worse, those of us that, that, that essentially are entitlement people. It's a full employment plan for you. <laughs> I love when I can say to somebody, like, I'm not trying to work myself out of a job, but you don't need us on this one. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, you check this box, you check this box, you just, I'm happy to help you. But those are few and far between where we actually can say to somebody, you know, I love that you called me and I love that you trust me, but you don't need us on this. And then they'll come back like three months later and be like, we actually do need you on this because we ran into this issue and this issue and this issue. And this. Is there now or has there ever been any sort of commission or uh, in the government or strategic group or anyone who tried to study sort of this problem and come up with suggestions about how to help? I mean... Because every, every jurisdiction is different. You know, we, yeah. we happen to, and I happen to be a city of Los Angeles expert. And the city of Los Angeles is enormous. There's more, I, there's enough work to do just within the boundaries of, of the city of Los Angeles. I don't have to go anywhere. But we do work in the county and we do work in Long Beach and in surrounding jurisdictions. And I'm a planning commissioner. I'm, I'm on the public side in Culver City for eight years, right? So mm. particularly smaller jurisdictions because they don't have as much going on except for maybe yeah. Culver, which is kind of a different animal in Santa Monica, right? Like you don't see, you don't see the same level of disorganization. LA is such an enormous place. Yeah. And you know, in some ways, it's just part of the institution. Like yeah. nobody can be an expert in everything because you can't be an expert in the harbor and in the West Valley at the same time. Right. I, I was just wondering if, if uh, you know, there's ever been a task force or a council member who ever said, let's just focus on solving the inefficiencies, you know, at, at uh, let's say, with permitting at building and safety, um, 
And of course, I know from the project I was just through that I'm in a huge problem that a lot of developers complain about and my engineers are telling me about is, is uh, the Department of Water and Power, LADWP, that they um, won't, and maybe I heard this wrong, but that they won't have any sort of pre-meeting about projects. They won't give you any real guidance. It's, I was told that you have to give them your full set of plans, then they give you comments, and if you're already in a permitting with the city, well, good luck. You have to redo your plans for their their needs. Yeah, I mean, I just I I think the the controller's office has done a series of studies on how the money is spent, et cetera, you know, and has made recommendations. You mean permitting dollars? All of the building safety planning, et cetera. Mm -hmm. they've, they've done those exercises from a financial analysis standpoint and made some recommendations. The city of LA just adopted a new what's called processes and procedures ordinance in an attempt to try to streamline things. But I mean, an overhaul of process at the city is is an exercise that I don't think anyone can wrap their heads around. And there's no right. there's no leadership to to put that as a priority. And so in the meantime, you know, we're here to try to make it frankly suck less. <laughs> That's the new logo. It's 360. You know, we make it suck less. I've said that in, in community meetings. I'm like, I, I, I'm not going to tell you that, you know, call and grading activities are going to be pleasant for you. <laughs> right. But we, we can try and make it suck less for you. Right? <laughs> right. That's funny. So Culver City, I'm a nearby neighbor. I live in Cheviot Hills and um, often shop and go there. And uh, it must have been amazing to be on the planning commission there uh, in the last eight years because, I mean, from, I don't know how the people who live in Culver City feel about it, but I know someone who visits there often. I'm impressed every time I go there. It seems you know, better and better. And with Google coming, like, it seems like it's really blowing up. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your experience there and seeing all that happen and sort of what you, what you see as the near future? Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty incredible. I mean, I don't think that those of us that have been involved in city government for the last even eight or 10 years can take a ton of, a lot of it really was done, you know, 15, 20 years ago and some visioning and some efforts by the city to build parking structures to enable the downtown to redevelop. Mm -hmm. I don't think that you can really say that Michael Hackman didn't have anything to do with it, right? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, he he and his vision, right, besides the fact that he's a mentor and a friend and dear, like, <laughs> you can't look at Culver and not say Hackman wasn't part of so you're referring to the, the Hayden track, the industrial properties that have become the vision and 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 I was involved in the project when Beats, which is now Apple, took mm -hmm. the campus. And it's all been kind of up and up from there because had some of those early companies not taken a risk um, and located in this little industrial park. For the most part, the rest of Culver was still kind of like small, sleepy town, right? Like this little sleepy retail corridor between Venice and Beverly Hills that you kind of drove through, right? There was no there there, even though 
it had the bones of this great downtown. And then with the redevelopment agency properties, it was kind of a combination of stuff in the Hayden Tract coupled with the approval of Ivy Station, which I was involved in, which is at the station and the, and the Expo Line coming mm -hmm. in, you know, and the redevelopment of downtown that had some of these like real big catalyst projects. It became a whole different place where instead of Culver City being this place that you used to drive through, it, used to, it finally became a place that you actually actively went to. And now fast forward, you know, it is arguably the tech capital of Southern California between Apple, Amazon, HBO, these massive companies, in addition to Sony Studios that are now headquartered yeah. here, it has completely transformed really the way that everyone acts. I think that for the most part, with the exception of some longer time older residents, people are really, really, really happy about what's going on. Really excited about the new investment, excited about all of the economic activity, excited about new people, excited about businesses. The city has gotten incredibly progressive on housing reform and finally looking at parking reductions and increased mobility and really focused on just like making this the it place to be. Mm -hmm. And now really starting to focus on the West areas of town and Fox Hills and some other areas. So instead of, you know, Culver is if geographically, like literally in the middle of Los Angeles. And so it has real opportunities for connectivity, yeah. access, and I am thrilled with what's going on here. I mean, if, you, if you've been downtown, like the streets are packed. Yeah. Yeah, weekends are packed. So will the will the parklet dining? Uh, this is a Culver City and an LA question. Do you think the the parklets, uh, the, which for people who are listening to this that aren't in LA, I'm referring to the uh, the parking spaces that were taken for for outdoor dining. Will they stay? I honestly hope so. There is a there is a, a I forget what the group is. There's a couple of groups locally that have frankly been trying to close Culver Boulevard to mm -hmm. make pedestrian for a very long time. But there was always this like, oh, the traffic, oh, the traffic, oh, the traffic. And I think that COVID right here, I look at Main Street in Santa Monica, I look at Larchmont, you look at some of these places where, where it is time that we prioritize people over cars and they will find other places to go. And there's more and more and more pe people on bikes and the bike network is incredible that I think that there is a, a really large contingent of city people in all jurisdictions and residents that don't want to see these streets reopen to cars. Let them yeah. go somewhere else and let's really create place in a way that LA has never done before because we were so car centric. If there's anything that the pandemic did in, in thinking about new ways of, of utilizing our streets. I think that's probably one of the best things that's come out of it. And even as a side note, so the National American Planning Association conference was two weeks ago. And I listened to one of the sessions that I listened to, attended the Zoom sessions, was on um, taking back the streets. And they said, mm -hmm. you know, one of the planning efforts that 
that they're going through in a zoning code update, and this was in Colorado somewhere, was really rethinking about use of the curbs, right? And all of the uses that now have to happen curbside. And where it, everything always used to be about metered parking and commercial mm. loading zones and metered parking and commercial loading zones. They're now talking about the realities of not just designated you know, ride share zones and food delivery services, but new ways of thinking about bikes and even, even just accessibility where mm -hmm. crossing is not happening at the corners. I mean, it was kind of fascinating when you think about the needs of the retail industry, particularly the restaurant industry with the boom of takeout that isn't going away anytime soon. And what do you successful restaurants need to survive with a thriving takeout business that now has become a big part of their operations. There's nowhere for anybody to pick up in the very basic, simple, right? It's gonna fail. So you're starting to see jurisdictions really prioritizing, um, prioritizing infrastructure to allow for multi-use of our curbs and our spaces. Yeah. I'm super engaged in that effort. That's great. I think, uh, yeah, I was wondering if, um, you know, like if Culver and some of these streets that did have parking pre-COVID, if they become like a promenade, uh, could they, they could simply sort of fill in the street up to curb level so you no longer have the curb. <laughs> it's just like, you know, a whole flat promenade where it's completely ADA and bike accessible would be great. So I think that there's a hundred percent vision for that. I think the real hiccup is going to be how does it get paid for? Because most of these cities coming out of particularly the pandemic are have no budget. Yeah. So right. there's 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 a real question about right this this constant struggle between the need, frankly, to to deal with our public space and the realities of the lack of funding for it. It falls really on the private sector as part of development projects to make incremental right. improvements where they can. I guess you could have like a BIDs, the building improvement districts, maybe where retailers and restaurants could sort of help too. Yeah, I mean they're more they're more focused on stuff like trash cleanup and mm -hmm. you know than they are necessarily about physical improvements that are that are real costly for small businesses. Right. Like long-term capital improvements where businesses come and go, so it's kind of hard to get existing ones to invest. Uh, changing, changing gears here, I know um, as far as on uh, my personal investment side and talking to uh, side of my business and talking to a lot of multifamily owners, there's been a lot of excitement and a lot of uh, things going on with the accessory dwelling unit program, the ADUs. I don't know. I'd like to take, get your opinion about how that program has been running and if you think it's successful. So what do you think of ADUs in general? So I love and hate ADUs. I love the concept of the accessory dwelling unit and creating incremental density within within the parameters of sort of your existing height, mass, bulk, scale, right? So it doesn't change the fundamental character of various. Mm -hmm. I'm very much supportive of 
kind of the original purpose of the ADU, which was really supposed to be on single family granny flats or create a secondary something, right? Mm-hmm. Again, but no one ever really knew it was there. I have a personal struggle, not a professional struggle, a personal struggle with the notion that you can do ADUs in now multifamily buildings up to an exorbitant number, which to me is basically just new units. I have a project that's 288 units that is looking at putting in 50 ADUs, retrofitting effectively defunct parking that's no longer required into new units. And I'm like, isn't that just effectively more density? Not that I necessarily have a problem with it. I have a problem with the notion that it's not just density and that you're in this weird ADU world that doesn't have to comply with any other standards. For me, the issue is I think that the adoption of the ADU laws maybe went a little bit too far on where and how it it should have been utilized. I don't disagree with the concept of it. Right. The other thing I, I kind of struggle with, and this is a personal thing as well, you know, like in Culver, they went through this huge anti-mansionization, quote unquote, right, planning mm-hmm. effort with people who are saying we don't want big homes. So the city actively downzoned all the single family lots on floor area pretty aggressively in the last year. So like I have a house right now on a pretty large lot but I can't add 500 more square feet to my house. They, right, I, I don't have right. the floor area by FAR, but I could put a 1200 square foot, two bedroom, two bath ADU on my house and make it substantially larger and it doesn't count towards anything. You can, even an attached ADU, attached to your house. Attached ADU yeah. or a detached ADU. It doesn't yeah. matter. Let's say I wanna add, you know, a bedroom and a bathroom and a little office because I'd love to have an office at home because I don't have one. All right, and try and squeeze that into the house. I'm like, I could just rip the whole second story off and put in, you know, a t- 1,200 square feet and call it an ADU as long as it has a little kitchenette. So the application of it sort of doesn't make sense to me in how they approached it. But that's just me personally. I think we've seen some very, very successful ADU projects where people are using it in a way to, to again, create a second unit on their properties for an extended family member or as a home office or something. I'm totally okay with the notion that single family zoning is a thing of the past, right? I don't necessarily believe that R1 zoning is the future for any city. Yeah. Do, do city um, planning departments have a feeling like ADU is, uh, has been thrust upon them by the state and that they have to sort of deal with it? They told us we have to. And it's, beca- it's because of the way that it came about. It, well, it's because of twofold. One is the way that it came about, but it is a loophole around the system that everyone's mm-hmm. figured out because what's what's really happening is people are building, a, you can only, you, like you can do an ADU within a unit that already exists. So people are building a house, 
building an oversized garage, getting the certificate mm -hmm. of occupancy, and then coming back and doing a change of use for an ADU in the garage and getting rid of the parking. Classic story. And there's yeah. nothing that the cities can do around that. You know, or doing it in a larger building, which is saying, I'm going to get rid of my parking, which now isn't required, and I'm going to add 10 units, right? So what is keeping you busy these days? I know uh, before we started talking here, we were talking about um, the, the cost of materials has skyrocketed uh, post-COVID, and I, I'm seeing some of my clients saying they're holding off on projects due to that, but uh, those are projects which have already kind of made it through the pipeline. What are you seeing? Uh, a lot of your work is these days, because maybe that will give our listeners an idea of what's coming, uh, a lot of stuff that's coming in the future. I think it's, you know, it's no secret. Our office is um, probably more heavily, heavily invested in the special needs housing space, affordable housing, permanent supportive housing, elder care, special needs housing, um, which is not market dependent. Um, mm. Yes, they're obviously subject to construction costs, but public projects, and I say public pro projects, which are receiving public funding for priority housing um, has always been a huge focus of mine, but we really, we have you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of projects in that space that that sort of never, never ends. That's a constant, um, regular source of our work with longstanding clients who we do a lot of work with. On the non-residential side, we are seeing a ton of uh, research and development in biotech campuses and biotech um, a lot of larger kind of office and institutional um, REITs and other companies that are taking what are now effectively defunct classic office space that's not necessary and convert into uh, biotech is really hot right now. Um, mm -hmm. I, I can't speak to why, but that's it. Mm -hmm. you know, we have a lot of people that say to us, can I do R&D here? Can I do biotech? Can I do a medical lab? Um, so whatever that, whatever that is. And then um, I've always, always, always had a large restaurant and hospitality practice. Our restaurant business plummeted at the beginning of the, like overnight stopped at the beginning of the pandemic, but a lot of it's coming back. A lot of restaurant projects that were moving towards opening or whatever in March that went on hold for six or eight months have come back. And I've always done a ton of hotels. And I, I don't, and frankly, I don't understand, but none of our hotel projects have stopped. Mm. They all plowed through pretty aggressively. Um, and I think what we're seeing, though, is a lot of revisions to the concepts. We're seeing a lot of people take what what was okay and rethink the space planning and rethink mm. the needs post-COVID. Different kinds of spaces, dedicated elevator banks to allow for, you know, separation of people and spaces, um, more outdoor space and operable windows, less people per square foot, and so that has sort of caused a lot of re-entitlement, rethinking of existing buildings, a lot of retrofit of existing buildings. I think that is where we're gonna see a ton of activity. 
That might not mean entitlements, but it does mean permitting and tenant improvements as, mm -hmm. you know, a law firm doesn't need 30,000 square feet now, they might need five. What happens to that space and what happens to the classic model, right? Do we move, you know, a creative office where everybody was in one room was the big thing. Do we move back to the old world of everybody gets an office? You know, I talked to a client yesterday who was like, it's great, we all have our own offices. And I'm like, that's brilliant right? <laughs> like we were all trying to be in creative office spaces with ping pong tables. I have a creative office space, sort of. Yeah. I think ideally you want the place you can hole up and get your privacy. And when you want that interaction, walk into the middle. Yeah. You know, to me, it'll be, I'm, I'm unbelievably curious to see what happens with companies like WeWork and shared office space. Well, Dana, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know you've got to go. You've got a super busy practice. If you hate what you do every day, you should stop doing it and find something else. If, if, you, if you have the luxury, absolutely. Did I wake up when I was a little girl and say, hey, I want to do entitlements for a little right. bit. I didn't even know what the hell this was, but yeah. 25 years into my career, I, I don't wake up and do the same thing on any day. The variety of the things that we get to be involved in and the people that we get to work with and the variety of the consultants, you know, I probably know, people always say, they're like, you know, everyone. There's a reason for it. And it's because we're not singular. And I, I personally, that works for me. That works for my staff that we get to. Your your career path is just like mine. I have, and just my career in general, I never had any clue where I was going. I always just believe I always tell my daughters, just get out there and work and do things, and you'll figure out what you like. You, but you can't figure it out. These people who go, I need to know what I'm going to do, and then I'm going to do it. No, you don't. You just need to take any work and start going and you'll figure out what you don't like and what you like. You can't figure that out not doing, not being out there doing it. Thanks a lot for your time, Dan.